0: I would be remiss if I did not start my remarks by thanking you if you had a part in providing that meal this afternoon. Now, I've been amened a couple of times, but that deserves a big amen. If if, if you enjoyed that, thank you very much. That's good stuff. If you went away from that hungry, then you couldn't pick cotton if you was made out of Velcro, is the way we say it back home. So uh, that, that was a very good meal. Now, I understand it's a difficult task to listen to a guy after you've been full and the building is warm, and it's the an middle afternoon. I-, I get that. I'm CPR trained. If you close your eyes, <laughs> I will revive you. <laughs> that usually keeps them wide awake. no problem there. Uh, just almost some disclaimer remarks. Um, if you're dealing with a depression issue, and you are either not able to see a therapist or not uh, comfortable with that process, Uh, let me recommend just a little bit of a reading list. Uh, There's a book by a guy named David Burns. Burns is a cognitive behavioral therapist and a medical doctor. And he probably has done what I would call the the quintessential work of kind of a self-help treatment plan with uh, this book that he wrote. It's called Feeling Good, The New Mood Therapy two very interesting things in that book. He has a Burns Depression Checklist. You kind of take it every seven days and you kind of monitor, hey, when I've had this kind of week, my depression scores go up or down. It's a really interesting little study. Uh, and then in the middle of the book is this, this uh, little test called the Dysfunctional Attitude Scale. It sounds horrible. It's a 35-question test that identifies those psychological traits that we have as either vulnerabilities or strengths in how we process information. That's where the whole event, meaning, emotion paradigm kind of comes from. Now, I warn you up front, Burns is not a Christian. And so there's a little bit of a language filter there. But as far as work with uh, depression, and especially if you're in a situation that you need a non-medicinal or non-chemical intervention with depression, Burns' book is is really, really tremendous. I'd say 70% of the people that I give that book to as homework Don't come back to my practice because once they get the book and take those two tests, by the time they've read far enough to get those tests, they'll call me back and say, I think I can handle this. It's a very tremendous work. And uh, if if you know someone or dealing with someone or even dealing with yourself, that's going to be a really, really, really good work. Uh, The other thing is that when you talk about depression, you most always have to talk about suicidology or suicide ideation or, or interventions in suicide. Now, suicide has has been called uh, a period at the end of a very long sentence. Uh, What I find is that uh, suicide, what it has in common, is people who feel helpless or hopeless. Now, if you think about helpless and hopeless, you recognize that's probably a cognitive distortion. Because there's not really very many places where you are absolutely 100% helpless, and there's there's very few instances where you're very, in reality, where you're very much 100% hopeless either. But when people get into that kind of thinking, they feel like that there's that's the only strategy. Um, Be careful saying things like "anybody who considered suicide." Is crazy, or anybody who considers suicide is, and, and, and where you want to put there? Sometimes people are doing the math, and according to the way they do math, it's a logical solution, but it's not a rational solution. Does does that make sense? You know, a, a little girl who's seven, and her grandmother is dead. When she says, "Grandmother's in heaven," I wish I was in heaven. I wish I was dead. Well, she's done the math right. She understands how it works. But that's not a a reasonable situation for a seven-year-old to think. And she is neither endangered nor suicidal. She's just... Well, somebody who's in a, a position where they're ruined physically or financially thinks I'd be better off dead. The Apostle Paul himself said it would be better for me to be with the Lord. Well, Paul was neither irrational nor crazy nor suicidal, but he'd come to a logical conclusion. So be careful when you find people who are despondent and feel like that that's the only thing. It, it's never a viable option. Suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem, and then that's, a, that's a bad thing. Um, when you run into people with, with suicide ideation or even in, in your own thinking, remember that suicide has in, in common three things. I'm going to communicate something I'm going to control something or I'm going to avoid something. So when I sit with someone or talk with someone who, who is, is actively uh, thinking or engaging those kind of thoughts, what message is this going to give everybody? You know, what are you trying to say with this? And a lot of times when people can articulate that message, the suicidal impulse goes away. Very, very often that happens. Uh, Then if you say, well, what are you trying to control? What are you trying to avoid? Again, they've got this distorted thinking that if if I act this way, I'll get this response from these people. Well, if you act this way and you complete the suicide and you're dead, who really cares what response you get from other folks? Um, The truth is the real victims in suicide are the people who don't die. It's the family you leave behind or the kids that you leave behind with all those unanswered questions. Um, Please be careful when, when you talk to folks about suicide. I always take a suicidal threat or a suicidal gesture as absolutely serious. Even if I don't believe it's serious, I act like it's serious. You can overreact to a minor situation, but if you underreact to a major situation... Then uh, you live the rest of your life with some regret and with some problems. Um, as an intervention person, as a parent, or as a youth minister, or as a minister or as an elder, typically and there's no instrument out there that you can take that's a vo- valid predictor of suicidal ideology or suicide completion. People have tried to come up with, with scales and measurements, and there's just not one out there. Uh, the best is treat it all as very serious. Someone mentions that they are thinking about hurting themselves or harming themselves. Then, then your obligation is to tell somebody. Young people, if one of your friends mentions that to you on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or any other thing, your, your response to that should be to contact their parent. Now I recognize that's a deal breaker with a friend you told on me, but I'd rather lose a, a friendship then lose a friend. Uh, if you're a, an adult, a sponsor of these teenagers, and one of them mentions suicide, you're legally obligated to report that to their parents or you're negligent in that response. Uh, a lot of times when you encounter folks who are acting out or, or talking about suicide, I usually measure two things. One is uh, lethality of intent. Now lethality of intent is once you've brought this topic up, Is your intent really lethal? I'll give you two examples and see if if I can illustrate what I mean. You You take a little girl, she's nine years old, and she believes, she's been told, one of her friends said, if you eat every baby aspirin in the house, you're dead. So she eats them all. Case A. Case B, you got it. And this happened one Halloween night. We got paged out, showed up at a neighborhood in Huntsville. A guy in his military dress blues walking around on the porch with his 45 service pistol pointed at the ground and walking around threatening to either kill himself or have the police kill him. He stood up there four hours and didn't do anything as Chad Smith says uh, he talked a lot about death but when death came to the neighborhood he kind of changed his mind because you got those guys looking at you through the scope of a long gun and if you raise that pistol past here a police officer will shoot you because he's going to let you shoot somebody else and so you got the little girl with the baby aspirin absolutely harmless but like eating a bowl of Skittles you got the guy with the forty-five, absolutely a deadly weapon and a trained marine each person had lethality of intent The little girl. She believed she was dead when she ate the aspirin. This guy, all he's got to do is raise that pistol, and he's dead. And although he had the more means, his intent was not as lethal as the little girl. Does that distinction, is that a clear distinction between this means yes? This means no? (laughs) Okay, all right. Uh, The other thing is, when a person says that they are suicidal and, and... to, to assess or assess lethality of intent, I usually just ask him, okay, if you're going to do this, how are you going to do it? Well, you know, sometimes people have a plan and, and they don't have access to the means. I'm going to strap myself to a rocket ship. That's probably not going to happen. Okay? Somebody says, I'm going to use my dad's shotgun. Where's your dad's shotgun? It's locked in a gun safe. Who's got the key? Dad? Okay, probably not accessed. I had a gentleman call me. I, I don't want to, to make fun of it at all, but he called. He was in crisis one of my OCD clients. And he said, Now, Brother Lundy, I don't want you to think I've thought about going down there and jumping off that Tennessee River Bridge. That's fairly specific to not have thought about it. Okay, I haven't thought about going down there and jumping off the Tennessee River Bridge. He had a spot picked out, a place picked out, and an action picked out. I said, I need to come to your house. Because he had not only plans, but means and access and the ability to carry it out. And so if you get that in mind, hey, I'm going to get in my car and I'm going to run into the first solid object I see. They don't leave your house. They don't leave your office. They don't leave your company. And you get them some help. 24 hours minimum, anything else is better. But 24 hours minimum, you don't let them out of another human being's sight. And that means that's why you have to call their parents young people or why you have to call their parents or have to call their spouse if you're an adult who's, who's doing this, this intervention. And you'll probably run into a lot more of those cases than I will as a professional because when people are in those modes, they don't immediately open up the, the phone book and call some random therapist they don't know. They call people they love. Uh, if you see people wrapping up loose ends, you know, somebody giving away prized possessions somebody is uh, wanting to, to close some loops, say, hey, I need to talk to this person, or I want to call my mother and tell her bye, you know, those kind of things, look for those kind of warning signs. Now, truly, you really can't predict it because a person who's truly suicidal does not want you to intervene and they may or may not let you know. And so if you end up with a person who who suicides Be careful with the blame game. Be careful making it your fault. Be careful playing the if only I knew. The only person who can tell you is them and if they don't tell you, you're not supposed to be psychic. So be very, very careful with that. Uh, Now, once you talk about that kind of extreme thinking, I'd like to do another case study of extreme thinking in the Scriptures. This individual is not necessarily suicidal, but you're going to notice he makes a life-altering decision based on some emotional triggers and some distorted thinking. If you have your Bibles, go to Genesis 25. This is 25 verse 29. Now Jacob cooked a stew and Esau came in from the field and he was weary. Now that's from, I'm using the New King James Version and I've got the word weary. Some of you guys have the word famished. Some of you guys have the word exhausted. Some of you guys have the word faint. Some of you guys have the word hungry. Is there any other words floating around out there to describe Esau? Exhausted. So you got a picture of a guy who's been hunting and He's tired. Right? I mean I've been hunting before and while hunting get hungry and decide I'm gonna go find me something to eat. There's a little place right outside of Gurley, Alabama, used to be called Miller's Barbecue. And Miller's Barbecue sold Brunswick Stew in the months of October, November, December and January. And I've sat in a tree stand on Keel Mountain looking for deer but thinking of Brunswick Stew. Guess who always wins? The Brunswick stew. So, you know, I understand Esau's plan. He's coming out of the woods and he walks by and his little brother's got some Brunswick stew. This is a red soup. So he comes in from the field. He's hungry, tired, weary, faint, or exhausted. Everybody got it? Esau said to Jacob, Please, feed me with that same red stew for I am exact same word. Weary, tired, faint, hungry, exhausted. The biblical writer, the inspired writer, describes him as this, and in his own words he describes himself with exactly the same word. So he's weary, tired, faint, hungry, or exhausted. It's not an extreme situation. He's just worn out, and he's been hunting, he's not done any good, and he's ready for a good meal. And this is the reason his name is Edom. Edom has some overtones of redness and so uh, he's kind of red and fuzzy anyway, but he's also going to trade for this red soup, and so he gets the nickname Red because of this horse trade he's about to make. So he walks in, his brother's cooking the soup, he looks at it says, hey, let me have some of that red soup, and Jacob says, verse 31, sell me your birthright as of this day. Do you think he's serious about this? You guys know what a walk-away price is? You ever deal with a contractor who does really, really big jobs and you've got a little bitty job and you say, hey, what could you do this for? And he gives you this astronomical figure. That's a walk-away price. It's such a ridiculous number. He wants you to walk away. Uh, we're putting some floors in our house, and my front door has a door, two side lights, and an arch, and it needs to be replaced. It, it has to be done. It's above my skill set. I can do a single door. I'm doing the floors. But this, this triple-wide pane door with an arch, mm, that's out of a kid's league. One of my wife's students just made the statement, my dad does home repairs. Well, his dad doesn't do home repairs. He does home renovations. So he doesn't do doors. I didn't know he didn't do doors. I sent him an email and said, Hey, I got this door, this, this, and this. What can you do that for? The, the number he shot back at me was a walk away price. I'm telling you the truth. It was, Yeah, I'll do your door. You morons, you know. And uh, I didn't even respond to it. I had no polite way to respond to it. He sent me an email about a week later and said, Did you get my estimate and what did you think about it? My response was, we've decided to take the money and send Jackie back to school and train her as a master carpenter <laughs> and do our own door. <laughs> that was, so, he, not, you know, I don't think Jacob sees you. I don't think this guy thinks my brother will trade his birthright for a bowl of soup. But listen what happens to Esau. Esau says, give me some of this red soup. Jacob says, send me your birthright. And Esau says, look, I'm about to die. What is that birthright to me? How do you go from I'm hungry, tired, weary, faint to I'm starving to death? Do you see that extreme thinking switch? He goes from I'm tired and weary to I'm about to die. Folks, anybody that's living in those kind of extremes is not making smart choices. And if you're not making choices that, that talk about a continuum, ideal versus unacceptable and what's in the middle, and you, you think about when you talk about the continuum of ideal versus unacceptable. You know, a lot of times I'll, I'll mention the ideal versus unacceptable continuum and, and they don't get it in the office. And so I usually ask kids, what's the best food you can think of to eat? One little girl said, macaroni and cheese. Her eyes lit up. I said, what's the worst food you could think to eat? She said, vegetables. Okay? So on this end you've got mac and cheese, this end you've got vegetables. Is there food between there? Where are you going to put pizza? French fries, Wendy's Frosties, Krispy Kreme donuts. Okay? But when you get in this extreme thinking, we think if it's not mac and cheese, it's vegetables. And there's lots of options in between. Esau is here and he says, if I don't get this soup, I'll die. How many times have we made decisions based on thinking like that? If I'm not with this friend that I've been texting back and forth, I'll never be happy again. And people leave their marriages. People go from, I'm unhappy at this point in my marriage to I've never been happy in my marriage. People make choices like, well, if that person's mad at me, everybody's mad at me. Well, you know, they've... Anytime you think about your life or your relationships in in extreme terms, always and never or every time, that's distorted thinking. Because there are very rare instances of always, never, and, and every time. And when you start making decisions to leave or to wreck your family or to end your life or to make a bad choice based on, look, always, never, always. Man, Esau goes from I'm hungry... I'm starving to death now compound this that when he says I'm going to starve to death in the back of his mind is this implicit thought now implicit meanings are things that are below the subconscious things that we just kind of think are true but may or may not be 15 year old boys implicitly believe that they're taller than you they're stronger than you That's just not true. Fifteen-year-old boys implicitly believe if they're younger than you, they can outdo you in lots of stuff. That's absolutely not true. Fifteen-year-old boys don't think they can be killed. That's not true. And we have these ideas. Well, Esau's got this belief now. Number one, if I don't get food, I'm going to die. And if I don't get that food, I'm going to die. Esau's father? Jacob is the son of Isaac. Esau's his brother. So Esau's father is Isaac. Who's Isaac's father? Abraham. Are these poor people? Are they homeless and live under the bridge in Palestine? Abraham was a powerful Middle Eastern sheik. He had so many flocks and herds that he and Lot couldn't live in the same geographic area. They had to go north and south. Abraham had an army of men that were born and raised and trained in his own household numbering 300 plus men. If you've got an army of 300 men, are there any groceries in the camp? Shake your head this way. This guy is the grandson of Abraham. You couldn't swing a shovel in this camp and not hit a sheep. And yet he walks in from the field and thinks, the only thing here will eat is that soup and if I don't get it, I'm going to die. If you take a time out and do that, he'd see a sheep, a goat, a turtle dove, a pigeon, a servant with a bucket of figs. There's enough food here to feed an army And he forgets about all the things that he has access to and laser focuses on this bowl of soup. And by the way, let's check his math out. I'm not good at math, but we'll do the formula. The reason I'm going to give you my birthright is what's about to happen to me. I'm going to die. So I don't need my birthright, so give me your soup. What happens if you eat the soup? according to his mathematical formula. What happens if you eat the soup? Do you die or live? So if you live, you think that birthright will ever be important again? Do you realize his logic is so flawed that, you know, I, well, I don't need my birthright because I'm going to die, so give me the soup. Well, if you eat the soup you're not going to die, you need the birthright. Wow! How many times have we seen people make crisis-based decisions based on logic that that's flawed? Well, this person loves me, so I'm going to leave my family and go with them. So, a person loves you enough to take you to hell with them. Wow. I know I'm in this relationship with this person, and there's an inverse in intimacy. Now, what we mean by inverse in intimacy is if I'm spending time talking to a female that's not my wife and that female knows more about me and my wife than my wife knows about me and that female, that's an inverse in intimacy. And that doesn't matter if it's person to person, Facebook, Twitter, text messages, whatever. When you're spending so much conversation with a member of the opposite sex that they know more about you and your spouse than your spouse knows about you and them, that's an inverse in intimacy. And the moment that inverse in intimacy has any secrecy, deception, or lying, it's an affair. Now, we do have to make the distinction in the church between a sexual versus a non-sexual affair. But as far as the borderline of what constitutes you've left this person and gone to that person for emotional needs, that's the line you cross. An inverse and intimacy and any secrecy, lying, or deception. And as soon as that happens, you're thinking just like Esau. You've got this idea that this other person will make me happy, or this family will make me happy, or this situation will make me happy. Folks, let me tell you something about distorted thinking. Anytime fantasy competes with reality, fantasy wins. Because fantasy is not real. And if you have, tell me after church, but has anybody ever seen the chicken sandwich that looks like the chicken sandwich in the window at Wendy's? Ever? Ever? You're driving down the road and you see that pigeon thing. I've got to have one of those. And you pull in and you order and it was like fried Tweety Bird on a bun. And a little bitty, tiny little sparrow they killed from, you know, the parakeets used to sell at the drugstore. I've never seen the chicken sandwiches in the window. When you get into that distorted thinking and you start looking at, I've got to have that. Whether it's a relationship, a possession, a substance, or anything, it's, it's... it's that relief in something that's just not real. So Esau looks at this bowl of soup. He's laser, laser focused. I, I, I go from ideal to unacceptable. I'm going to die if I don't get this. And what good is my birthright? Well, your birthright's really good. And he makes this trade. Listen to what the Hebrew writer says about this trade. This is, this is Hebrews chapter 12. Because he kind of sums up this story. Hebrews chapter 12 verse uh, about... Fifteen. Looking carefully, lest any one fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator, sexually immoral, or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. The Hebrew writer called it a morsel of food. You want know morsel means, folks. This is not a thirty-two ounce ribeye. This is not the all-you-can-eat Chinese buffet. This is ramen noodles. A morsel of food. And you know that afterward, the emotion-based thinking goes away. He's had his soup. Having and wanting are not the same thing. He's had his soup. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, oh, bad choice. The soup wasn't worth my blessing. I want my blessing. You know, afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently and with tears. He's makes a trade based on emotion-based thinking. And when he realizes he made a bad deal, some things can't be undone. Some bells can't be unrung. You get mad. You get in a car. You drown your songs with a beer. And you run over somebody. You can be forgiven for drinking. You can be forgiven for driving drunk. That person's not coming back to life. You've ruined that family. I don't want to lose this boyfriend, so I'm going to go to bed with him. That baby's coming into the world. And you'll never undo that. You shouldn't. But that baby will be there and there's consequences. You lose your temper because some guy insults your pride. And and, fellas, let me tell you, toughness is not about what you can dish out. Toughness is about what you can take. Plain and simple. And if I've got to punch you over something you've said... Listen, I play a little contact football. I fool around with these cage fighter guys and the, the mixed martial arts. I've never been hit in a real fight as hard as I've been hit playing ball. We play this silly game at camp called German handball. It's brutal. It, you know, it, it's basically a fight in the pool with a soccer ball. It's awesome. We, Cody grew up playing. He's back there laughing. <laughs> you, you cannot be fail of heart and play German handball. And maybe one time in eighteen years, one guy lost his temper in the pool. Man, we brutalize each other fighting over that stupid soccer ball and we get out and hug and laugh and tell war stories to the girls. We've never gotten mad. But you lose that temper because somebody insulted that pride or dissed your colors and you hit him and he falls backwards and the back of that head strikes a bumper of that car and he's dead or paralyzed. You're going to jail. You never undo that. Esau made a rash decision based on poor thinking and when the fog went away and his judgment woke up, he said, I, I want to do different. I, I, I don't want it. I want to change. He found no place for repentance, even though he thought it, sought it diligently, bitterly, and with tears. Young people, ask yourself, what am I trading for? Adults, ask yourself, what am I getting, and then what am I losing? Because everything you say yes to in life is something else you say no to. And, and I don't want to try to be funny here, but literally, it is the oldest trick in the book. Because in the first book of the Bible, Satan asked Eve, what can't you eat? He doesn't remind her what she can't eat. Because the answer to what you can eat is the whole planet. Every single thing that's green, God gave me for food. But Satan asked, is it true you can't have that? And she ignores what she can have and focuses on what she can't have. Now Eve, let's read the fine print. If you eat this, you're going to be ashamed that you have the relationship you have with your husband because you're both naked. If you eat this, the relationship between you and your husband will probably dynamically change forever because when God comes to the garden, and by the way, gentlemen, Adam was the caretaker. The Bible says she gave to her husband who was nearby. I don't think that meant she went four rows over. He's standing here letting his wife talk to a snake. I don't know what he's doing. When she gives it to her husband, she ate first and then he ate, but when God comes to the garden, who does he talk to? Adam. It's his responsibility to caretake that garden. And as soon as God says, why did you eat of the fruit? He says, the woman you gave me. You feel like the dynamic of that relationship changed as soon as he threw her under the bus? Eve, you're going to lose your innocence. You're going to be awkward because you're naked with your husband. That innocence goes away. You're going to find out that your husband is inherently selfish because he's going to blame you. And when you hear God coming to visit, you're going to be afraid. Saddest verse in the Bible. We heard you coming and we were afraid. And you move out of paradise and it hurts to have kids and your physical body's going to die. You read that fine print, you think Eve's going to pick that piece of fruit up? You read that fine print, you think she's even going to be in the center of the garden entertaining eating that fruit with that snake? Absolutely not. But when we start in depression... And we start that extreme thinking, we start that illogical, emotion based thinking. What we do is, is we make these decisions based on something else, and then we get to a place where we well, go, I wish I hadn't made that choice. I wish I could do it over. I wish I could redo. And by the time you get to that point, oftentimes it's too late. the good news about this is number 1 your congregation has taken the seriousness to talk about this topic so so you can check yourself you know what do i feel versus what do i know is this really going to make me that happy Am I comparing fantasy to reality? Rather than focusing what I don't have, let me focus on what I do have. And if I do say yes to this, what am I saying no to over here? Or if I say no to this, what am I saying yes to over here? And all of a sudden we start making these, these value-based choices rather than emotion-based choices. Most of the, of the irre, most of the regrettable, irreversible things we would do in an episode of depression go away. Now, I understand your thinking is not always clear when you're deeply in depression. That means you don't solve this on your own. That means you talk to somebody. A minister, an elder, a friend, somebody with some maturity, a licensed professional counselor, a doctor, or whatever. But the the, the thing is that when we have these emotional type issues or when we have an addiction issue or even when we have a depression issue, Satan whispers in our ear, you're weak if you can't handle this by yourself. And if Satan can get us to act by ourselves and not talk to each other about our struggle, Satan wins. Every single time. I hate to confess this, but when I change the, the tires on my car, I have to use a lug wrench. I can't pinch those bolts off anymore. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed to tell you. You say, well, Lonnie, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. You've got a tool provided that makes that job easier. Yes. And anybody who doesn't use their tools is foolish. And you've got a building full of tools when you're depressed and you have anxiety and you're struggling and you're sad and you're stressed and you're despondent. And It do not have to be some counselor. It can be Christian people who love you. People who've been married deal with marital struggles. People who have kids deal with kid struggles. Kids who have parents deal with parental struggles. Talk to people who've raised kids when you're stressing. Talk to to people who've had teenagers when you're stressing. Talk to some of these older folks who've been married longer than you've been alive and say, hey, tell me about how you work this stuff out. The best resource we have in mental health is that the church is described as a body and Paul always describes the church as an organism, not an organization. We begin to act like an organization and we think there's ins and outs and ups and downs and approved people and disapproved people when no, no, we're a body. And when one part of my body hurts, the rest of my body rescues it. One part of my body suffers, the rest of my body compensates for it. That's what the body's about. So don't fight these struggles alone. Don't fight these battles alone. Quit letting the church be a place where we're ashamed. I read somewhere the church is the only place that kills its wounded. And we should be a hospital for sick people. A hospital for the emotionally sick, the psychologically sick, and the spiritually sick. And if people aren't comfortable letting us know they need help, then why are we here? I knew I was coming to to church this morning, if you will let me use that word. And And I didn't know very many of you. don't know a lot of you now. But when I walked in the door, there was something already on the table. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior or I wouldn't be here. If I thought I had it all together and didn't need a Savior, I'd be hunting. But I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. That's why I'm in a building like this every Sunday morning. And everybody else is in. If you're not here because you have weaknesses and you're here for the wrong reason, admitting that we are weak and admitting it to each other helps us help each other. And then at some point, it may get above your pay grade. You may be in a place where some of the actions are serious enough or they've gone on long enough that you need. But really, the first step before professional care is personal care. The brothers and sisters in the body of Christ loving and caring for each other. When one member suffers, we all suffer with it. When one member is honored, we all rejoice with it. That's the way to treat depression is is find somebody that you trust and that loves you. And at that point, if it needs to be a counselor, they'll find one of us. The good news about all this is, if, especially if you take the, the case study of Esau, is it says he found no place for repentance. In Christianity, there's always a place for repentance. Amen. As long as you've got a breath in your body, God will forgive you. God will allow us to... read. Now, now, God doesn't rescue us from consequences. But God forgives us of those mistakes and God forgives us of those sins. I hope this has been informative and helpful, but more important than that, if, if you have a spiritual issue, if you're not a member of the Lord's Church or you're not a faithful member of the Lord's Church, without years of therapy, without even a therapy session, you walk down this aisle, we pray with you, pray for you, you're forgiven. You walk down this aisle and you confess that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God you're willing to repent of your sins and confess Him as Lord and be willing to be baptized, your sin problem is washed away. Now you'll struggle with sin the rest of your life, but you'll always be forgiven as long as you're walking in the light. And and I may not have answered all the questions we have about stress and anxiety and depression, but I've got the answer for sin. And that's Jesus. And if you need Him, come down this aisle right now while we stand and while we sing.